episode 17 of Emerge Podcast. Uh, we've pulled it out of the bag. Again, we've got Scottish comedy legend, TV presenter, host of radio show, uh, Off the Ball. And most interesting of all, Motherwell fan, Tam Cowan. How's it going, Tam? Very well, very well. Although I can nearly always greet the minute I hear Motherwell because <laughs> I've been lucky enough to get two wee recent trips up to the, the stadium, uh, up to meet the commercial manager. As you know, every penny's a prisoner now and we're trying to get some events yeah. organised to raise a few shekels at the club uh, once this is all finally over. And honestly, it breaks my heart. I'm not normally the, the kind of emotional type, but in the, the twice that I was up recently, once to get my cardboard cut out, his mother were just <laughs> no, one of the clubs yeah. that's doing the old cardboard cutout thing. Right, right. £22 aye. it costs, you can get your face in there uh, during the, the closed door games, which I don't fancy at all. I'm dreading, I'm dreading no, the prospect no. today. When I mean, you watch the English stuff, it's absolutely garbage and soulless, you know, aye, no matter how much noise they want to put on with the, the sound aye. effects for Sky. But in the, the twice, two times rather that I've been up, uh, part once for the cardboard cutouts and then for another wee uh, meeting last week it just I look around the big empty stadium and uh, as great and as very comfortable and very homely as it has been in there I do start dreading when we are actually going to be able to sit in there and sit next to my pals and Aye. go for a bovril at half time I, I still think it might be a wee bit off I was going I to say is, have you had any any sort of time scale? Yeah. Wait, wait. well if I had to put money on it, I'll not tell you who told me, but if I had to put money on it, I don't think there'll be a crowd inside a Scottish game uh, until the start in November. Right. Which means, that of means, course, eh? that, you know, Celtic were maybe wasting their time getting the SPFL computer drunk one night and <laughs> uh, allowing it to get uh, the fixtures exactly the way Peter Lawwell and Neil Lennon wanted them, you know. <laughs> uh, that comes out that could have been a complete waste of time. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I think it might be November. And don't get me wrong, beggars can't be choosers. Um, as long as you would, you would think, in one respect, that as long as the games start, and let's still hope and pray it's August the 1st. Um, as I say, every week when we would be Professor Jason Leach on, um, he's been increasingly confident about that day. Uh, right up to last Saturday when we, when we had them on. So, August the 1st would be great. Yeah. But I must be brutally honest, I know the clubs need the money in, I know we need the Sky TV deal to kick into place so that we don't effectively renege on that and they pull out the funds or anything. But I, I, I really wish there was some way we could still get around the table and if it was financially possible, uh, we could only start back in Scotland when we know we've got some sort of crowd um, inside the ground. But the flip side to that is uh, the, the idea that we came up with last Saturday and off the ball and we really ran with it over both shows was the very idea because social distancing doesn't uh, apply to a section of getting the... Sorry? What was that? I was going to mention that. I was listening to that the other day. Uh, I was going to mention the, the, getting 11 year olds in and getting the, the youth into in the stadiums to sit down. Yeah. It's, it's my internet went really bad, guys. Sorry, sorry. There you go. But the, uh, I like when folk, when they just interrupt you, uh, they just blame it on being frozen or something. Or blame <laughs> it on I, I know, that's real bad internet there, guys. That's all my fault. That happens all the time. 
But the, no, I don't think that's such a bad idea. And I've, I, apart from the normal kind of folk you mentioned about red tape and how in this day and age you can't, or for every 25 kids that you have in a football ground, you need one adult supervisor. And adults couldn't go in because of all the rules today with COVID-19. But I think there comes a point. I'd, I'd like to get a list of them, in fact. There must be so many rules, uh, even at government level or at social level, or, you know, just life rules for the 21st century that have been a wee bit bent and a wee bit buckled uh, during this crisis. So I'm sure we could maybe twist the rules. And, and when we were talking about it as a matter of parents, let's say, uh, driving their kids, we'll use Fur Park as an example. They drive the kids up to Fur Park. The parents don't get out the car. When you're yeah. in the car on the way there, you're in your one wee social bubble because the folk you've been in the houseway for, you know, 100 plus days now, you drop the kids off, they go into the stand, they pick a seat, they can fight our seats if they want because they're able to touch <laughs> each other, there's no social distancing, and you just let them enjoy themselves. And as I say, after we mentioned the subject on uh, last Saturday's lunchtime show, I get three uh, text messages from current, uh, sorry, two current players and one current coach uh, involved in the top flight. And they all said, that's a great idea. They all said, bring it on. And particularly for the players' point of view, you know, you'll have been at games where a lot of kids are maybe allowed into a particular fixture. And sometimes it doesn't sound too great, you know, and it's like screaming wings and all that. And it sounds a very unreal (laughs) atmosphere. But at least it would be an atmosphere. And I reckon the, the, the players, and even for the, the, the adults, if you like, the adult supporters watching at home on the laptop or the, the phone or whatever it might be, it, it, it would be a better atmosphere for them, I'm pretty sure, rather than just listening to some piped-in sound effects, you know? <laughs> so so I'm, all, I'm all for it. Aye. Is that, do you think that, see, see when you, like, they watch the games anew and they've got the piped-in sounds, as you say, did they hear that? Did the players hear that in the stadium as well? You know what? I think it's high time. I'll do it tomorrow in the radio, but I think it's high time somebody get a bloody answer to that because I have been asked that by a variety <laughs> of people. Four folk this week, two of them in two other podcasts. Uh, because, as you know, guys, you're one of uh, 13.5 million people in Scotland currently doing a podcast. So <laughs> oh, you, get, you get quite a lot of these uh, requests. But yeah, it's a great question. I don't know I, what I compare it to. Now, the pair of you are a lot younger than me, but you'll still have watched repeats of Bullseye on Challenge TV. Oh, aye. I used to wonder that when they were up throwing the darts, see, just when they were throwing the darts at the start for either the subject board, yep. or just trying mm-hmm. to score the highest, so you I used to wonder, could the players hear that in the studio? Because that would pretty hard. And yeah, then, aye. when it comes to them throwing for 101 or more with six darts to get Bully's star prize at the end, you get the big drum roll, blah, 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 blah. and I thought, uh, can they hear that in the studio? Because that uh, would put you off as well. So it's a good shout. I, I, I don't know if Henry's got the answer to that. Um, I, I would I would imagine, only because football players, they always tell you when it comes to even shouts they get for the terraces or that, the old cliche they say is the minute they cross that white line, everything is just blotted out. They can't uh, hear anything they focus in the game. So... It might even be pointless playing it out over the tannoy at the stadium, but um, it's an interesting one. I'll definitely try and find that out tomorrow. Aye, we need to get that to get to the bottom of that. What's, uh, what's your sort of earliest memory time of being a being a Motherwell Motherwell fan? Is it run your family? Because you're a few, um, few that way, is that right? I know. I mean, my dad was a kind of a Motherwell fan light, as I'd say. He always supported his local team. 
Son, I think, is very important. But he didn't necessarily go to a lot of the games. That, uh, and, 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 you know, apart from back in the days when he was a boy as well. But I grew up just uh, about a mile and a half, whatever, down the road to Fir Park. And so as a kid, when you were out playing, just as a, a young kid, as everybody used to do back in my age, you'd run about the streets morning, noon and night. And it was always, maybe let's say on a Wednesday, which is the only night you used to get midweek. Or maybe you're out playing with your pals on a Wednesday night and you'd look away up in the distance, away up the hill, and uh, you'd see the glow of the floodlights and you'd realise that there was a game on at Fir Park. And uh, that, even before you were really remotely interested in going, that, that did give you a wee interest. And then when you finally, just as young kids as well, would probably a wee squaddy has made the big... Uh, the, the the decision to head up to Fir Park when there was a game on, you know, which right. seemed like, you know, going on a day trip or something, and we'd, we'd have headed up there, and it had been the classic thing of getting a loft over or whatever. Uh, as you, you know, I don't know why they still don't do that. I mean, quite frankly, clubs like Motherwell, St. Marin, whoever, you, you should still be allowed to give kids a loft over the turnstile because right. there's acres of empty seats. And I, I always argue that if you've got a kid there, if anybody came up to me and I'm aware of the Fir Park, I mean, I left the and I start, absolutely no problem because when they grow up, it might be like me who got my first season ticket for my 10th birthday. And when these kids grow up, they, they before you know it, they're your next stream of customers. They yeah. might want to buy season tickets. They might want to, when they're in work, they might run their own business thing. You know what? I'm going to sponsor Mullo or at the very least, you know what? I'm going to take some hospitality. So that's the generation to look after. Don't don't chase them away when you've got acres of empty seats uh, sitting there. But um, so we would go up and get a lift over, uh, and then as I say, because um, I, I, you know I'm a firm believer. You, you get some folk when you ask them that question, you're expecting the answer to when did you go to your first game? As if oh I was I was a babe in arms, and yeah. my dad I was three days out of the maternity ward, the umbilical cord had hardly even been cut. And my dad took me up to see Motherwell against Hibernia. And, and, you know, <laughs> I think that's a lot of shite, frankly, right. because you, you, you need to hit a certain age. And my best example of that, my mate Neil, who I sat next to the front bar, his, his boy Matthew, who's now about 21, I think, um, he brought him originally to the games when he was about, I think, about three, four, maybe. Maybe three or four. And he wasn't remotely interested. And it just became, you know, a nuisance for yeah. my mate Neil terms having to look after him and he would have to take him to the toilet and he would have wee tantrums and he'd have to take him outside or phone his wife to come uh, and pick him up and all it was a nightmare you know so lo and behold Neil sensibly he did a wee hiatus period with uh, Matthew he didn't, he didn't appear for a few seasons then he started coming back as a regular when he was about I don't know maybe 10 and uh, he's no missed a game since and he right. sits there and watches the football so I was a wee bit like that. Lo and behold, 10 with me as well. In April of uh, 79, it would have been. Right. 10th birthday. I get a season ticket for the following year uh, as my big birthday present. And, um, and that was me. I started going for that season. And I've, I've kind of renewed it um, every year since. So that, that was when I... And I would say that when I, when I got into it, I mean, we went up for the loft hours with his kids. You know, I'm talking about even get up there when I was maybe, I don't know, seven or eight year old. Yeah. I can't claim that I was particularly interested in it. It was more the big adventure to go into this big place called Fir Park, a big stadium with the big lights and all these crowds inside and outside. And that was all it was as a kid before the football bug really kind of bit. 
So I'd say anyhow about 10. That's, 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 my, that's my recollection of starting to watch games and starting to know which player was which, etc. Who was the who was the manager? Was that about kind of Davy Hay, sort of Tommy McLean sort of time? Was that? Ah, it was just before Davy Hay. It was the last chuck of the dice by right. Ali McLeod. Right. Who we go when he came back to Argentina with Scotland, and um, and then as I say for uh, season eighty one eighty two, which we won the old first division um, under Davy Hay. That was the first year that I was really just besotted with the fact because it helps. It's a wee bit. Same way to say that you, uh, you know, the worst thing you can do with a puggy, a fruit machine, and a pub or anything, or an amusement arcade, is to win money out it right away because that's <laughs> your hook. You think you'll win all the time, Aye, but in a way, I, I was able to get hooked on Motherwell because that season under Davy Hayway, oh, we, we were beating teams five, six, seven, nil every week, home and away. We ran away with the old first division. We won it. In March, we were we were officially declared champions in March when we won a, a midweek game up at uh, Wraith Rovers. I mind all the Motherwell fans piling onto the park. Uh, so that was me absolutely hooked uh, with that season. And to be honest with you, for the, the, the season and a half before or whatever, when I had my season ticket, the start of my season ticket, the, the, probably the big thrill of going along then, even though we weren't very good, was just that that guy sitting in the dugout was the guy that I'd watched in Argentina sitting shaking his seed and his seed and his horns and all that when I was watching Peru and Iran getting results against us and that. So there was like watching like a, a big Hollywood celebrity. So, you know, there was Ali McLeod sitting in that wee box at the side of the park, you know. But I did the first season that I really I, I thought, oh this is good. I like this. So going back to so these times Motherwell were, were charging on, as you say, one on the, the old first division. So I think so. They were at. Don't get me wrong. They've they've improved big time um, over the last few seasons. But with the, did you say they were one of the better teams then in Scottish football back then? Back when, sorry. Back when when you were growing up. So sure about the David Hay sort of era. Oh, David. Aye. Well, I mean, we were a wee bit. Uh, the the wee couple of seasons there, we were kind of yo-yo. We get like David Hay brought us up. And then uh, he left to go to America. I think it was a simple thing, as you see, you know, yeah. any sort of personnel leaving Motherwell to go to a better paid gig tends to be that any gig uh, that you get offered when you're at Motherwell is, of course, better paid because we're, we're not a huge club. We don't have a lot of money. So David Hay went over for some, kind of mind what the job was, but he went over to America, some maybe coaching capacity at a, a, maybe a college or something. I can't mind exactly yeah. what it was. But it was a real disappointment at the time. And um, Jock Wallace came in after him and uh, kind of, I think, slowly dismantled his team. And right. it didn't work out too well. And we get um, relegated again. And then we have the whole history of the club changed, if you like. When we get relegated, um, we uh, we had uh, we went down to the first division. Tommy McLean, who had just got Greenock Morton promoted, he was offered the gig at Motherwell and he clearly saw Motherwell as being a bigger club uh, than Morton with mere opportunity. So we, Tommy, came back down the divisions again to right. take over at Motherwell. And then he brought us back up when we won season, uh, that would be what, 84, 85. And then we've we've enjoyed, that's now 35 years of top flight security, albeit right. a wee nod to league reconstruction that saved us once when they expanded the league and of course, which even any Motherwell fan will tell you was a nonsense when we were spared relegation because the, the SPL, Roger Mitchell et al, dictated that uh, Brockville 
wasn't fit for top flight football. Uh, so poor old Falkirk uh, got a dinghy and we were saved that year as well. Um, so, you know, I, I, really ridiculous stuff. But um, aye, so we've been 35 years now top flight, so it's been brilliant. Ah, it's been brilliant. Well, see, just on to your, your career, what, what actually came first for you? Was it, was it radio or TV or comedy? What, what sort of came first for you? Window cleaning. Window cleaning. <laughs> Uh, the ninth, during the 1986 World Cup in Mexico, I inherited a window cleaning route right. from uh, from a guy who was in our street, and it was brilliant because I was like a millionaire. It was uh, it was just in our scheme, and only did it on a Sunday. But boy, I didn't half batter in, so it was like a pound a house, uh, absolutely dirt cheap, you know. And uh, I somehow managed to do 40 houses in a in a Sunday. Uh, getting up early in the morning, doing it right through to tea time. I, I must have been the fittest guy in Scotland at right. the time. Up and down the ladders and everything. I'd, I'd horns like, you know, that were like a, a, a three-year-old tangerine, like in and out <laughs> the, the pail and all that. But I did that in the summer of 86. And, you know, so 40, 40 hussies at a pound a pot. To be that age, I was just about to go into sixth year of high school. And then I, I did, I had uh, 40 quid in my Sky Rocket once a week. It was it was absolutely brilliant, you know. Um, but when I was in sixth year at high school, I got involved in a wee bit of writing um, and started sending some stuff off to radio sketch shows and tele sketch shows. And primarily at the time in, in England, doing stuff like Radio 2 and Radio 4. Aye. And uh, they used some stuff, these programs that I'd sent stuff in. So it gave me a wee bug for that and then through doing that I get involved with writing stuff for Scottish uh, programmes at the BBC and I mean even the early days the only an excuse I was very lucky to get some lines on that and it was basically just audio tapes you know Aye. and then uh, the producer of that Phil Duffer who funnily enough I was out for a coffee with uh, yesterday a wee socially distant uh, coffee around about Glasgow yeah. um, Phil uh, had a meeting with him and they were they were doing stuff like Naked Radio on Radio Aye. Scott, which then became Naked Video. So I did a bit of that and a wee bit of like Scotch and Rice. There was a lot of Scottish stuff at the time. And then through that, um, I got a wee start with Evening Times in 1991, doing a wee strip column on a Monday. And uh, the great thing about that was, 91, of course, I won't even mention it in this because it's an off-the-ball trope, but it was a great year to be a Motherwell fan. And it really helped me starting out in the newspapers that year because the, whereas you, I'm sure I had many a sleepless night about getting up the next day when I had to write a column and having yeah. a big blank page and no having any that I could think of. There was never a shortage of stuff because Motherwell went on that brilliant run all the way right. to Hamden. So that was a good time for me to start. Then about a year later, I get my second column for Evening Times and then a year later, I get my third. So they were basically paying a salary, if you like, and I was yeah. doing a lot of writing for uh, still for the, the radio and the telly. And then through the two platforms in 95, I got a call um, about doing off the ball. And then with doing off the ball on national radio, evening times uh, in Glasgow, if you like, in West Scotland. And then in 98, I got to be transferred to the Daily Record. Yeah. And then we have the Daily Record as a national paper, the BBC stuff nationally. Uh, we then get a wee start, bits and pieces with the telly and that, and then yeah. um, starting offside, which ran for nine years. Um, so it was a kind of wee funny path I went on. 
But where we were, I did, and still try to do it. It was just a matter of getting your head down and really getting on with it, you know, getting it your best shot and hoping that something comes out of it. See, we off the ball, do you think it benefits that you, so obviously you're a Motherwell fan and Stuart Sasson Johnson fan, isn't he? So, right. Do you think it helps that you're no part of the, the, the big two in Scotland? To be able to kind of... We, we, we are the big two in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Motherwell St. Johnston, you're watching this. <laughs> no, I know what you mean, I. No, and I think you're absolutely right. I, we often wonder, no so much what it would have been like if, let's say, I supported Rangers and Stuart supported Celtic, right? Mm-hmm. It's more intriguing what it would have been like if, let's say, I supported one half of the old firm and Stuart was still a St. Johnston fan, yeah. or vice versa. We wonder what that dynamic would have been like. But I don't think there's any doubt that we started. Um, we had a, a great big audience, untapped audience out there, who were maybe pig sick of the mainstream media absolutely arse-licking when it came to Celtic and Rangers, yeah. and turning up at Rangers and Celtic front uh, Rangers and Celtic players front doors on their birthday with a big birthday cake that they get captured for the cameras and all that kind of crawling stuff you right. know so when we were able to come out and kind of shout, shout up for the wee teams which we still try our, our absolute best to do which is why I can't wait to get in the morning and set about the SPFL's computer generator <laughs> and all that you know um, must be great if you think that every club uh, could just you know speak aloud about what you want, how you want your fixtures to pan out and lo and behold, the computer was listening. You know, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I'd love to get a bet on that. I really would. I'm out of, <laughs> I'm out of, I'm out of sync to now with my regular visits to the bookies as I still be. I, I like a gamble in that, but I don't bet online mainly because I'm a shite bag and, and I, I fear <laughs> that uh, as far as I'm aware, if you bet, if you've got an online betting account, as far, correct me if I'm wrong, but you could just sit there and keep gambling until your bank account was cleared out. Aye, pretty much. I think, I think they've maybe put in some sort of regulation now aye. that maybe so, you can put caps on it, but aye, I think you're so right. So I would never do that, but I'm a, I'm a regular at the horse racing, and I, I, I used to own a lot of greyhounds and that and race there in the Shawfield right. Stadium. And um, if I could have got a bet on that Celtic versus... And it even was the right way around. It was even the way Celtic wanted it. They were wanting the game at home, it wasn't it? And I thought the SPFL, they could at least play ball and say, right, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that fixture, but we'll have it at Ibrox, right? So Aye. it looks half no crooked, you know? But um, <laughs> I, I just thought, you know, and I'd love to get a bet in that for that to come out. The absolute final fixture in the first quarter of games that were published. I mean, it was incredible, absolutely Aye. incredible. How is the draw for yourselves? The, oh, well, we're out. Again, and you think, what does that mean? We are away at the opening game week. Mother were up at Ross County on right. the Monday night, right? Now, here's where this is shite for me. Because of the radio, away games for me are an absolute luxury, right? Yeah. I can leave the BBC two o'clock on a Saturday after a first show. Bomb it out to Fur Park, watch the game, leave five minutes early to beat the traffic and get back in for the show at night. Easy yeah. peasy, right? And touch wood, I've never been caught in traffic or had a flat tire or anything, right? When it comes to the away games, right, I'm hoping, but the minute it gets into October, even maybe into November, I start playing any time model or due away from home for a heavy frost or a, you know, a, a, an absolute snowstorm because right. the game postponed and put on, totally selfish, I know, it's a game put on midweek, so then that I can get to it. So, Aye. I must be honest, see the idea of Motherwell 
playing the league opener at Ross County in Dingwall on a Monday night, that would have been heaven to me ordinarily. Because I'd have gone up, I'd have maybe even made a night yet, stayed overnight somewhere in Dingwall, went up with a couple of pals or whatever. Yeah. And it would have been brilliant, a great, great day out. But it's bonkers because Motherwell are now going to go up there on the Monday night. And I stress, going up on the Monday night, they might have, because it's such a long trip, they might have gone up the previous night to keep the players fresh, or they might have gone up early, early in the day and get into a hotel in the afternoon for a, a wee sleep for two hours. Right. They're not going to do that now. I know that for a fact, talking to them at the club the other day. So mother were going to go up that long, long run. Um, if in one coach, of a big 53-seater, we basically just the bare bones on the bus, the, the first team... Uh, squad by the first team as selected by Stevie Robinson and you know just a, a handful of the backroom staff spread out on the bus might have to be two buses because of the regulations yeah. and probably they'll get if they're not already going with a kit on they'll get a quick change up there um, and then they'll play the game back on the bus and straight back down the road you know and I believe, I might be speaking out of turn, but I believe, and I, I, would, I, I would encourage them to do it, you know, as long as they observe all the social distancing rules. And I, I, I think there might be a wee handful of Motherwell fans, you know, just to watch the game and have a pint, maybe, in Dingwall right. uh, and watch it on their, their, their tablet or whatever, but just feel that they're part of it up there. Now, I worried about this. Um, the minute closed door games were mentioned for the first time they were mentioned, which is now a good couple of months ago, when we knew we weren't going to get crowds in, I, I feared that, particularly, let's say, the big English games, the, let's say the Man City-Liverpool game, yeah. when they were effectively crowned champions to get their, their guard of honour, yeah. Liverpool going on to the park. I thought there must be Man City-Liverpool fans who, for 50 years perhaps, have never, ever missed a game and they wouldn't be able to resist an occasional act. They would want to maybe congregate outside the stadium yeah. and watch the game on their, again, on their phone or whatever, but just feel that they were there. And I thought, that, in terms of a crowd, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And it could start a, a, you know, a second outbreak and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, as, as time marches on, and as I say, you're only maybe talking about a handful, a wee posse of Motherwell fans, maybe some of the well boys who create the atmosphere inside the stadium, Maybe some of them are going to take a heater up. And right. uh, as long as they do everything safely, then I, I don't have an issue with that. Aye, no problems. How, how did you uh, meet Stuart initially, Tam? Was it just through the show? Off Aye, was the first, the first day we did the first show. That's where we went. Um, I, I had done off the ball, some folk always forget, for a, for a year before Stuart got involved. But it was, a, it was a kind of different show. But it was how off the ball started. It was Greg Kempel. That's right, aye. That's right. We hosted it, and uh, and it was me and Sanjeev Coley, of still game fan, and another fella, a roving reporter called Ian Ross, and that's how off the ball started. Um, it, it basically started '94, uh, the yeah. August '94 for a season, and it was it was only half an hour. It just came on at half five to six o'clock after the football, and uh, that was it. And Greg and Sanjeev and Ian, with their own admission, they, they weren't really big, big football fans. They didn't actually go to games or anything like that, you know. Um, and I was the only one that did. So when they were when they were wanting to continue with the idea of the off the ball and I think they're a fan show, 
Uh, they brought Stuart in to present a revamped off the ball. And because uh, we'd had a great reaction to the first year, but it's just it wasn't, it wasn't quite right. The dynamic wasn't there. So it was Stuart that came in as a host. And uh, because I'd been there the previous year, I was in first with him for the first week. But the, the, the idea at that stage, though, I must be honest, was uh, to have like, a rotation system. It might have been somebody else in with Stuart the next week, somebody else the next right. week. Maybe, maybe me back if me and Stuart had been all right for the fourth week. But the first week that me and Stuart did it, the first day I met him, we kind of clicked a wee bit. And I think the model St. Johnston thing, support my daddy team, helped. I think the fact that even over a lot of folk we were deemed to be in the way we we present ourselves poles apart. Um, Stuart, uh, you know, pointed out early doors that we had very, very similar upbringings. For example, him and a, a, a council scheme in Perth, me and a council scheme in Motherwell. So there was a lot there where uh, we had a common bond. So I think that was, we gave us a wee spark right for that first day. So lo and behold, and uh, good on Stuart, he said to the producer after that first week, he said, you know what, I think maybe keep me and Tam next week, that seemed to work. So that then kind of spawned the, the format in the early years of the show because it was me and Stuart and then one other at the time. And it was ordinarily then, I mean, the first couple of years, I don't think we had a so-called celebrity, an ex-player, a current uh, player, an ex-manager on. It tended to be because uh, the kind of hard copy fanzines uh, were still really selling well, still hugely popular. So we had an absolute rake of uh, fanzine editors who we had on, uh, shouting the odds for their club. Uh, so that, that, that they were the early days. Probably. Does it feel as if it's been it's over 25 years? Has it flew by? Uh, yes and no. When I, when I do think back to you know, maybe the early days and where we went one night after a show in such and such place for a drink. Oh, do you remember we bumped into Hammer? Do you remember we went down with the producer to the the Riverboat Casino and we watched Paul Laurie stunned in the water, winning the no, I'm winning the open. Right. The other boy had put his ball in the water. The French guy, mind right. that? No, that was way back 1999. Right. Um, and if I think back to then, I think, God, that seems like an absolute eternity ago. But, aye, 25 years, it, it kind of, it, it, it does kind of whiz by because um, it's just, you know, it, 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 I think it's in, in keeping with the, the show. I mean, we, we always run out of time in the show. And we always, and I, I feel quite bad about it at times, but there's nothing we could do. We get such a, an input for the listeners with texts and emails um, and you know comments and Twitter and all that, and we, and, and we can never get through them all. Aye. I mean, I keep them all. I, I, I'm I always after every uh, second show on a Saturday night, I, I take all the emails that I haven't I haven't used because they all get handed into me in the studio. Or as happens now, they get sat on a chair between the studio and the booth next door, and I go and pack them up. Actually, all social distance more than hardly for the vast majority of time, they get handed to me by one of the runoffs that works in the show. And a big wedge of emails. And it's funny how you train your mind to, you know, like speed read these things, just to try and immediately, you don't want to start reading one out, particularly if it's a quite long thing and you realise it's just frittering out and there's no point <laughs> to it, you know? You want to chuck out the right good stuff there. So because of that, I make sure that all the stuff that isn't read, um, I take it home with me and then normally on a Sunday, when I get up and I've read my papers and that, I'll get the big wadgy emails sitting down in front of me and just like a teacher 
mark their homework or whatever, I'll go through them all. And I mark things off with a highlight or a wee asterisk with a pen. And then I keep the ones and I put them back in the folder and uh, they go back in with me. Uh, and if there's anything still relevant, uh, as a wee throwback to last week's shows, then I, I'll, I'll, I'll chuck in these there. in. Aye, can, I don't know. Can, can you hear me at all? No. Aye, aye, I can hear you. Yes. Sorry, Tom. There was, there was high, highly technical issues here in the car. <laughs> um, I don't want to apologise. Sorry, sorry, but I'll come back to you. See me talking about the show. And is, is social media changed that a lot? Is that is that like you're talking about uh, Twitter and stuff like that? Has that helped you in any way, or is it hindered? I, 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 th- I think it has helped because originally the, the correspondence, because that's because we've been on for twenty five years for the first several years of uh, starting the show, um, we were getting, you know, letters, handwritten letters. Wow. And as a correspondent, that's how old the show is. And just because of the nature of that, somebody having to physically sit down, get some writing paper, get a pen, get an envelope, get a stamp, go and post a letter, you get nowhere near as much correspondence. We, we, we still got a load of it, and it was great to receive it. But the minute everybody suddenly went digital and you were getting emails sent in, and then later on, whatever it is now, I think Twitter's now maybe 11 years old, um, the minute you started getting all the tweets in and that, which a lot of folk like sending you, then it just absolutely exploded. So it's good in terms of uh, giving you an absolute wealth of material because I'm forever crediting the, the listeners with the success and the longevity of the programme because they, they're, they're the ones that really make it whistle with the stuff they send that it's just incredible we've got a lot of really smart funny listeners who are, are, are like the you know they're, they're an added dimension to the show yeah um, definitely see see moving on to your offside days so offside was a, I love the show it was absolutely amazing um <laughs> What was that like when you, you kind of made the transition for, I know you said you'd done a wee bit of telly here and there, but what was the transition like for being primarily in the radio to then everybody watching you? Well, the good thing was I had a great grounding with that because in 1998, uh, round about the start of the 98-99 football season in August, the BBC launched these uh, regional satellite stations, uh, BBC Choice Scotland, BBC Choice England, BBC Choice Wales, BBC Choice Northern Ireland, uh, which two years later, they all kind of merged them, they had a wee reshuffle, and they became BBC Three and BBC Four, which are still here with us, BBC Three, I think, online only, but BBC Four, you'll see it there in your Sky Planner. Um, But in the two years that that BBC Choice Scotland existed, the commissioner at the time, uh, Ewan Angus, who I still see from time to time now for a pint, uh, he was wanting me to do something on this new channel because by that time I did a weekend a national platform with Off the Ball and a national platform in the papers with the, with the Daily Record. So we, uh, that's when we started doing Offside uh, with me in the hot seat. And it was only done because the BBC Choice Scotland budget was... was minuscule. It was just done in Studio B, the old Studio B at Queen Margaret Drive, the old BBC. And it was just a small studio. It was me presenting it and with two guests. And it was invariably a a fairly low rent. uh, That sounds like a bit harsh, but it wasn't an A-list celebrity, (laughs) shall we say, right? But it was somebody you knew. 
as a maybe a celebrity football fan and ordinarily sitting next to a, a journalist, a football journalist. They were, they were, that was the dynamic for my two guests. But the great thing was, we still had the cameras there, we had the auto cues, we had the good film inserts to play in, we did Vox Pops almost primarily to keep the cost down in the Botanic Gardens across the road for the BBC. Uh, there was always a script written at me and my pal to this day. Uh, who we did all the offside programs together for the, the nine year history. Uh, my pal Rob Christie, who's now in charge of everything at the, the comedy unit in Glasgow, we still had to put out a script every week, you know, with jokes and with Aye. material and with inserts and everything. So it was absolutely brilliant training. And some of the shows themselves uh, were really good, and some of them I really, really enjoyed. We, we recorded those ones back in the day at BBC Choice Scotland. We kind of recorded them about four o'clock in the afternoon right. and at the BBC, and they went out on BBC Choice Scotland. But again, just with the nature of the beast, I didn't even have satellite tele at the time, so it, it completely, I had never seen one of these programmes, you know. <laughs> but the interesting thing was, for all the techie whiz kids out there who are always the first to get the new gadget or first to get, you know, when it was like Blu-ray DVDs or whatever it might be, you know, or the first to get the new iPhone. There was a lot of folk out there that would start to get in correspondence for who say that, oh, I, Tama, get BBC Choice Scotland on a Monday night and I'm able to see the show. Absolutely brilliant, you know. So it was a great training. It was a great grounding to do two years that way. And we did it every single week. Yeah. It was a wee battle at the radio. We did not date like a wee series of six or a series of ten or whatever. So we did that every week, but with the kind of summer break, if you like. Did that every week for two years. And then because it had kind of worked, uh, it, we get the big the big transfer, if you like, for BBC Choice Scotland to BBC One Scotland on yeah. a Monday night. So I didn't exactly go into it, um, you know, wet behind the ears, but... Where it was different, of course, was suddenly getting in there with much, much bigger guests. You know, I mean, we had everyday, you know, Matt Letissi, Kevin Keegan, yeah, the Reclaimers. Right. You know, we had everybody. Um, we had much bigger guests. It was a bigger studio. And, of course, because of that bigger studio, we were able to get in an audience of, I think, the capacity you could get in. Studio A in Glasgow was about 274 or something like that. Right. So you were doing it in front of a live audience and it was as live we did it in the seven years we did it on BBC One uh, we did over off, over a hundred about 120 shows I think we must have done uh, we recorded it at we'd try to start from near later than eight o'clock in the Monday night and that meant that anything any story that had broken that night right up to about quarter to eight if it was a big story we were able to get a wee joke about it um, right. in that night's yeah, programme you know, or a wee, at least I mentioned and um, so we'd record that about 8 o'clock as live and only if a camera broke down or if somebody said the C word or anything <laughs> would we ever edit you know we'd keep it right on the dial with a stopwatch almost and then that made it you know a wee bit easier for the, the team up in the gallery who were meant to do the edit because the programme had to go at 10.35 yeah. So you didn't leave a lot of wriggle room wow. if you were parting about during the recording and everything and, and it was like a dog's dinner and you just said, right, there you go, see if you can tap that up in like an hour and a half to stick it on BBC One. So we were very strict with that, but again, that was good kind of training, good kind of grounding um, as well. And I had an absolute ball doing it. And particularly when, you know, when we were able, we always used to get a cup final special 
Aye. which went into a slightly different slot. Basically, whoever was playing in the cup final, and it's not Paul was got back to, but it was Hearts Gretna, 2006. Then we, the program that night it went out um, from it was the the big hotel just off the M74 down in Gretna. Um, can't remember what it's called again, but you see it for the motorway. And we recorded the show in there. Half the audience was Hearts fans, half the audience were Gretna fans. Uh, Brooks Mileson, the owner of Gretna at the time, uh, he was actually just stood no nearer than out in the car park. We had a camera on him in the car park because the smoking ban had come into play, of course, <laughs> uh, just about a month I or so earlier. And, and he was the absolute chain smoker, you're right. So we, we, it was just a gag as well, but we kept him out in the car park. He's puffing away in his fags, and we just <laughs> got to him now and again on the camera. But that was brilliant. So we're a show like that. We uh, we recorded that one on the Thursday night. We would have done all that on the Thursday night, just so that because it was going out on a Friday night, which in later years, you know, 10.35 on a Friday night, it's now, you know, like the Graham Norton slot or something like that. So it's a big, big slot on the schedule. So we want it just to tweak it and tweak it and tweak it and try to get it right. Um, so these, these shows were great. We had a ball day and travelling around the country. It was, it was magic. I remember them, they were, they were superb. See if you could pick maybe one guest that kind of springs to mind as maybe your favourite or whatever. Do you get anybody in mind? Um, well, for, for personal reasons, when we get Tony Christie on, right. when Tony Christie had done uh, the time being Amarillo uh-huh. with Peter Kay, the charity record for Red Nose Day, <laughs> That's right. uh, they were looking, he was kind of re sparking, reigniting his career uh, in the back of that, quite right as well. But I'd always been a fan of his. And, and actually, Amarillo would only have been about my 11th favourite Tony Christie song. <laughs> to the point, there was a wee bit of me when he did Amarillo. I was a wee bit annoyed. It's like, we've all got our musical heroes. And when they do something like that, albeit for a good cause, it kind of doesn't sit easily with you, you know what I mean? Aye. So, um, it's like the adverts are now. The, uh, the boy out the hoop. Who's the front man of the hoop? I can see him in my mind as well. But anyhow, it's he took part recently. I'll give you another one, Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro, I'm still the new. He's taken part in some right naff adverts on telly. You must have seen them, right? Aye. So I'm sure he's making millions of pounds, whether he needs it or not, but there must be die-hard Robert De Niro fans watching these adverts and saying, oh, Robert, for fuck, come on. <laughs> these are idiots, you know. <laughs> so there was a wee bit about, about that with me when you're seeing Tony Christie joking about with, you know, Zippy and Bungle for Rainbow in a video Aye. and all that, you know. So to answer your question, when we did get Tony Christie on the show, um, I, I'd been to see him live and all that. I've got all his albums and all the rest of it. I still listen to him. He's got an absolutely amazing voice. I saw him last summer up in a broth at the, at the Webster Theatre. Um, when Tony Christie came on the show, part of the joy for me, he was doing a rehearsal in the afternoon because uh, he was going to sing two songs. He, he brought out an album. This is entitled Today in the Back of the Amarillo Success. Yep. And it was a, an album of covers, the pop classics. And he was right. singing Life on Mars, the Bowie uh, song. So there was me, Tony Christie fan. I kind of sneaked into the studio, sat up in one of the seats in the audience. Just me, sitting there. There's Tony Christie, one of my musical heroes, was doing his rehearsal 
for uh, the show that night, and it was absolutely spine tingling. And then, of course, when he came on the show, he sang us out with that song. But we weren't going to let the audience down. We just said to them all, when the, after the credits had been over, the, the show was in the can, we just said to the audience, you want to hear Amarillo? And, oh, they're all going <laughs> So Tony, being a good sport, he went straight into um, Amarillo just for the crowd that was in that night. So he was great. And then, I, I think I mentioned him earlier, that I was always a fan. Who, who isn't a fan? Yep. Of Mark Letissi. You can still, if you've got a, a spare 10 minutes, I know you just stick his name into YouTube and sit and enjoy um, all the great clips, all the great goals for Southampton. So when we had Matt Letissi on, he was absolutely amazing. Uh, the Proclaimers were as well. Jim McLean, poor old Jim McLean's not very well right now, but he was a great sport when he came onto the show. There were so many of them. I mean, it's hard to, you know, there were two, maybe three guests in every show. And as I say, or the certainly the seven years on BBC One, we, we must have done about a hundred, I don't know, I think about 114 shows it ended up. So, loads of them. What about it? Did you ever wonder uh, when you were going to record this live, especially in Glasgow, at eight o'clock at night? Did you ever wonder about the crowd, maybe getting a wee bit too rowdy or anything like that? Or were you, did you like that? No, the, crowd, the crowd were brilliant, and the Aye. crowd actually were rowdy when we wanted them to be rowdy. I mean, they were great at joining in. I mean, there was a whole thing we did, I think, our two seasons where we had uh, looking for Scotland's most talented fan. And it was a variety of folk around. Maybe a guy came in with his guitar singing a song. We had an absolutely crazy Hibs fan that we got on one night who wanted to show how good he was on a pogo stick. And uh, <laughs> he came in and basically we introduced him out. You know, he's effectively on live telly and he came out in front of the studio audience with his pogo stick. And while we played some big fast bit of music, he just bounced about. And he's hamster <laughs> the pogo stick. Now all these guys were absolutely brilliant. And the studio audience, we you know, we, we, we put out tickets to right around the country. And a lot of folk made a wee night yet. There was many a time folk came down in a, a car load and they stayed overnight in Glasgow and yep. um, there was supporters, uh, buses, members of supporters, buses who got a block booking of tickets. And they would come down and see the show, and we would actively, dis- uh, we would actively encourage them to wear their like fatma taps and that, and the audience, and it gave it a right good splash of colour. And what what it helped with me, if you imagine, if there'd been a big story involving hearts, let's say that week, right, and you knew if you're looking out at the start of the show that oh, there's a couple of guys up the back there with hearts tops, you would just tell the director, right, two hearts fans up uh, the second back row, right hand side. Make sure you get a shot in them because if there was a wee gag or something about hearts, it was good to just get a shot in them. So I, that was great. The audiences were absolutely brilliant. And the great thing is, I had, uh, in the, uh, it was a few months ago now, um, I had put up some clips that my, one of the, the guys that used to work in Offside was, he'd sent me a few clips that he'd discovered with the shows. And I put them up on Instagram. And the feedback I got for folk was immense. It was absolutely brilliant. Aye. So we're, we're trying just now because we know there are still going to be gaps in the, the telly schedules um, for the foreseeable future because nobody's been able to make programmes in it. We're, we're, we're currently trying to get some uh, small compilation sorted of oh, offside gold. And, oh, you should just get back and do it. I'd be brilliant imagine that back in the telly. Don't get me wrong, that would be my that would be my dream. I mean, the idea that if we could get some compilations on the telly, 
and uh, they, they were well received. Then I, I would love to say, right, you know, it's not as if we almost we stopped doing it thirteen years ago, but it's not as if when we stopped doing it thirteen years ago, we stopped because I was sixteen, I was getting a bit doddery. I mean, I, you know, I was doing them in my late twenties into my thirties, so at fifty now. Easy peasy, we could just do new shows. And, and I don't think, to be fair, to Offside and to everybody that worked in the shows, it's never actually been replaced, you know? I mean, I, I, I salute the, 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 the team that they um, a view for the Terrace, for example, but as you know yourself, it's a totally different type of show, you know? It's no, it's no, they're no aiming for laughs all the time. Uh, and it's no, they've not got a studio audience and... It's not even really, I mean, the, I think they were recording the name on a Wednesday for going out on a Friday night. And the big shame for them, as I said to some of the boys when they were on ways in the radio, the amount of things in their first run of programmes that they missed on a Thursday. Because Thursday's been a big European night. I think yeah, it was a aye. Thursday as well that Brendan Rodgers walked out in Celtic. I think a Thursday as well we've had Scotland games. So they were always kind of missing things aye. like that. So as I, as I referred to earlier, the beauty of doing your shows like as live, you know, if it was quarter to eight uh, in the old golf side days and we heard that a manager had been sacked in the Premier League, then we'd have been able to get a wee reference to it and hopefully a wee joke if we thought one up quickly enough. Right. Uh, like you say, it was different as well. Do you remember, uh, obviously, when you had uh, Jonathan on as well, then you'd be bit at the end. Like, that aye. was superb. That was brilliant. Aye, that was great because Johnny with that. Um, I mean, Johnny Watson... Um, who's a pal of mine was um, Johnny and all the time he did only an excuse and still do it in fact Johnny never ever 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 claimed to be an impressionist he never claimed to be you know like Alistair McGowan or John Culshaw or for older viewers Mike Yarwood or anything like that he's a he's a he's an actor and Johnny needs a script he knows that Johnny is an actor who works for a script but again starting with the inception of only an excuse Back in the, what was God, what would it be now, 1984-85, when it when it first exploded um, on the the airwaves on radio, um, Johnny he's a big fat fan, and it turns out what a happy coincidence he, he, he had a skill for doing some voices. So that, that's where that all stemmed from. So yeah. the great thing was when we get um, the the wee bat, I think it was called uh, only a wee excuse. I think that's what we called it on offside uh, with Johnny's wee five-minute stand-up spot. That had originally been done, recorded during the week, and with Johnny in makeup and stuff like that, and then we would play in the clip on the Monday night show. But, you know what, it was mere trouble that was worth, and we says to Johnny, you know what, we know you're all a stand-up comedian, you know, but just why don't you just get in front of the audience, you and the microphone, You've got the, the script, because you're an actor, you've got the script on the autocue and the cameras, you know, and just do some characters there. Uh, and, and, and that worked a treat. The audience always loved it, you know. Oh, and there's tons of them on YouTube now, and they've got thousands upon thousands of views. I just a Johnny, just doing his five-minute stand-up. It's millions of you. Aye. Right. So you back to the guest time, is there any sort of awkward moments you ever had with anybody who maybe just didn't sort of fit the dynamic or anything like that on the show? Well, I, 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 but I never think, you know, the one that always just kind of slightly frustrates me, we got John McGinley on, former Bolton right. in Scotland striker. Uh-huh. And when he came up late afternoon into the BBC, we went and had a cup of tea and all that, and he was like, chat, 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 right? And he was pulling out one great story after another, you know? 
And right. I'm like, oh, this is great, this guy's going to be dynamite. And then when we got him on the settee in the studio at night, the minute the cameras came on and the music started, the lights were on, um, he just froze. It was the strangest thing ever. Now, as I say, the audience was, it was, it was you know, 270 of an audience. Here's a guy that had played at Wembley, played at Hamden. You know, <laughs> he, he just couldn't handle it. And always, whenever I asked him anything, even directly teeing him up with stories that he'd told me earlier, he just started dancing monosyllabically. He was, yeah, I, no, I. <laughs> and I thought, oh, geez, oh, you know. And then when we went back into the green room, and I'm already hoping and praying that my producer and my director are going to be able to cut that down, cut it down, cut it down, make it make it decent for the telly. The minute we went into the green room and we had a wee bottle of beer, he then started wee stories again. They were absolutely <laughs> oh, he must have told me at least three when he had a bottle of beer in his hand. I thought, God, if he'd have even told one of those on the show, oh. that's all we would have needed. So, so that was near frustrating and anything else. But I don't ever give a go to the guy. He was just, maybe just wasn't it for him. Um, the mere panic was always because you're doing it as live uh, was the very thought, which oh, put the fear of God into you, the very thought of a guest no turning up. And we were lucky that in all the eight years, it only happened once, but it was still a late call-off. We were meant to get on the big darts player, Andy Fordham, the big aye, hairy guy. And when he was flying up for London at lunchtime to come up and do the show in Glasgow, as he was walking up the steps of the plane to fly up, he, he fell and slipped a disc in his back and he was carted away to hospital. So in all the drama, for him personally and all that, it was probably even like about two hours later, he might have been lying in the hospital bed when he suddenly realised, fuck's sake, I was meant to be doing a show in Glasgow the night for the BBC. So we get the frantic call. Imagine this, once you've got all this stuff prepped for him, you had clips, Aye. you had a script, you had jokes about him, you had wee things about darts, you had, you had, I, I, I can't even mind all the stuff we would have had lined up. But anyhow, about five o'clock, uh, you know, when I'm almost getting changed into my nice, crisp, well-pressed flannels to do the show, <laughs> uh, we get the call that Andy Fordham can't, he's not here, he's in hospital. And uh, so what we did, and I'm always thankful to a man of many clubs, but I primarily Dunfermline and Airdrie, big Andy Smith, right. uh, if you mind Tam, big striker, short blonde hair. Oh, aye. Right, 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 I know what you're talking about. Aye. Well, Andy, I think maybe on the Saturday, a couple of days earlier, he might have, I think he was maybe on off the ball with us, and he'd been really good. And I said, you know what? Let's give him a call. Let's see if he can come in. And he didn't stay too far for uh, Glasgow. So we got him in, and I can't even mind the reason. I think, I think it might even have been that he was one of the guys that was in a shot at glory. There were a lot of the kind of the Airdrie era players in that with Ali McCoyst and Robert Duval. So we thought, Aye. that's something we can I ask him. We were clutching at straws at this Aye. point, you know, because Andy Fordham was a big booking that night. So um, that was it. But, oh, when anything like that happened, as you can imagine as well, for all the years that we did it, when you started tipping into winter, um, you know, as much as I'm saying to you earlier, that I love now the, the prospect of a frost or some snow, I think it's an away Motherwell game called off and I can go to the rescheduled one midweek. When you get the frost and the snow, traffic problems and all that, when, on a Monday, 
when you were doing off the ball, you're thinking, our guest doesn't go to arrive. You no, know, maybe they were just, could be somebody from Aberdeen, let's say, driving down the road, going to get right. caught up in traffic or the weather. Uh, the audience even, you know, uh, I mean, what if we were meant to do a show and the camera's always panning about the audience and there's no audience there because they've all been held up. So you had a lot of panic about that, but you just had to go on with it, you know. Ah, well, luckily, as you say, you can you can adapt to it. But we'll not we'll not keep you too much more longer, Tom. You just I just want to ask about your um your sort of column that you've got on the Daily Record. So you'd sort of comedic style um, writing about news and sport. But one thing that you'd done as well was your um, your sort of restaurant reviews and the food critic. Right. How how did that come about? Was that just your idea? Did... Well, the food critic. I mean, God, I, I mean, I did that uh, for sixteen years at the at the record, and then when I moved in twenty fourteen uh, to the the Scottish Sun, uh-huh. it was the first thing they were wanting me to do, and I right. did it with them right through to last year when I finished up with them, which was just the way print journalism is. It just I'm, I'm afraid that as a columnist, I was certainly an expensive luxury. Yeah. Uh, so that was that. Sadly, the newspapers are now they're in an awful state, and I, I, I don't think it's ever ever going to come back. And I, I say that as a guy that had 29 years in newspapers, and, I, and I'd love to do something else in newspapers, but it, it seems highly unlikely because you know they, they simply don't have budgets. But yeah. when I joined the record in '98 from the Evening Times, it just so happened I was signed up by my then editor. Today, a football column on a Saturday and a news column midweek. But the Saturday that I was going to start off in the paper, just coincidentally, September 1998, it turned out to be the same Saturday that the Daily Record was launching its first ever magazine. And the editor wanted me to do something in the magazine. So I'm kind of always a firm believer in kind of sticking to what you know. So I says to him, I says, look, I'll do something if it's something that interests me, you know. And he says, right, what are your interests? Because I was just meeting this guy, really, you know. He says, what are your interests? Now, at the time, 1998, I'd have been, what, 28, 29-year-old, single, footloose and fancy-free, absolutely <laughs> brilliant social life. So I says to him, I says, well, listen, I, 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 I socialise a lot, I eat out a lot, uh, I drink out a lot, and all. he says, right, Restaurant reviews. We're wanting someday today the restaurant reviews, but we want them in your kind of style. We want them Joe Punter style. Aye. Uh, we don't want them all fancy Dan with some of the Sunday broadsheets and all that, you know, writing about where the acid jokes were sourced and how the tomatoes weren't quite as good as the ones that you had in Italy <laughs> three years ago, you know, all that pish. We, we want the written in your style and just having a laugh and a joke and a carry on. So I, I says, right, that sounds all right. It sounded better than all right, you know, getting paid to because he gave uh, a contract to give me the extra money for that. And of course, any restaurant you went to, you got a receipt and you claimed them back for the paper every month, kind of thing, you know. So you were suddenly getting paid to go and feed your face, you and uh, a pal, you and whoever it might be, your bird, you and whoever. It was, mm-hmm. it was, it was brilliant. So that's how it started. And who are all the things I've done? Um, you know, we were very, very lucky that. The minute we started off the ball, that it kind of took off, and it's it's become a a, a a long time kind of success. And as I say, there's no many TV programs in front of a studio audience that will stretch to 114 shows, you know. But who do all the things I did in terms of the whoosh? It was the restaurant reviews. There was folks suddenly contacting me 
who wouldn't even have known that I wrote about Fatma or that I was on the, the radio talking about Fatma. It was just they were fascinated by the, the restaurant reviews and had a great following with that. Oh, it was. It was brilliant. And my dad and my brother as well used to, used to follow. On Instagram and stuff like that, didn't you? You're still doing it on Instagram. You were doing Oban the other day and that. You're fishing chips. I have not done it any great length, but wherever I go, and part- I mean, even recently, like through lockdown and that, when I, I've tried to support as many the restaurants that I go to ordinarily, when they started doing takeouts or delivery of that, I would always try and help them out and plug them and stick up their names. And then even like when I've been doing the a wee weekly giveaway thing for yeah. uh, for the key ah, workers yeah. of NHS folk. Um, I've got them to maybe put up a meal for four or, you know, for somebody that deserves it and all that. So they've been very good with that. And that, that on a very, very smaller scale, has been the equivalent of kind of still doing restaurant reviews. But it's, the stuff expands. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm in the throes. I don't want to crawl myself and, and I'll jinx me or anything <laughs> like that. I'm in, I'm in the throes of maybe doing a food-related thing with the BBC. So so that would be good. And that would be a conversation. That'd be magic to see. Because I think as after after 20, 29 years, sorry, 21 years, doing the restaurant reviews up to this time last year, um, I don't want to chuck all that away because it's amazing the amount of uh, stuff that you've got tucked away in your head after going to a restaurant every week for all the years professionally, apart from all the other ones I was going during the week, but going to all these (laughs) professionally, and every week writing a 1,200 word uh, review. So I don't want that to go to waste. I want to go on another media platform where... Oh, 100%. Uh, is there, a, is there a, any restaurants that kind of stick out in mind that you remember thinking that was a tremendous experience in there? Or? Well, there was a one that, where I nearly got uh, killed and I wouldn't be sitting there taunting in it. It wasn't a hasty food poisoning or anything like that. It was, it was a cracking place up in Argyle up now, if you know the road, if you go up to Loch Gilphead, and as you get through Loch Gilphead, you come to the T-junction. You can either turn right to go to Oban, or you can turn left to go down to Campbellton and all that. Right. If you turn left there and head down, uh, you then head inland a wee bit, and you come to this tiny wee place called Kilbury, K-I-L-B-E-R-R-Y. And back in the day, this might have been about, I don't know, 2000, 2000 and no, no, it was later than that, sorry, forgive me. It was around about 2005 or six. They won our Daily Record Hot Plate Award. Me and my wife had gone away up there one night, stayed overnight, tiny wee place with like three rooms, but the rooms were beautiful. Food was great, husband and wife team that ran it, and oh, you couldn't fault the place. So lo and behold, they won our, uh, our annual award. So after they had won it, I had to go up for the presentation, and a couple of my pals from Hamilton, uh, one of them said, listen, I'll drive. Mum will go up and make a wee date. And I thought, oh, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So the three years drove away back up there, whatever it was, two and a, two, a good two and a half hours in the motor. And up there I had to meet up with the owners of the place. I had to meet up with a photographer for the paper who was going to meet us up there. And uh, we were getting uh, ready uh, for the uh, presentation, you know. So, to make it really nice, what the folk at the Kilbury Inn had done, just before we get the photo taken, we local guy appears with this big massive basket of uh, fruit and veg and all that, and he's the guy 
that provides all the fruit and veg. And he thought, damn, in terms of local produce and that, I thought it'd be nice to have him in the photo. I said, oh, that's a great idea. 30 seconds later, another wee guy walks around with a sheep <laughs> on a leash, right? And Tam, this is the guy that provides all our lamb and mutton just up the road, the wee farm. Thought it'd be good to get him in the photo. I says, oh, absolutely brilliant. Next minute, 30 seconds later, this guy comes in with this massive, big Highland bull, right? And uh, Tam, this is, the, this is the, the farmer we use for all our beef. We thought this would look great in the photo as well. One of the big hairy coos. Right? Uh, you know right? And I thought, wow, this is going to look extraordinary. So we're all lined up for the photo. Me in the middle with the presentation of the trophy to the winners. And then at one side, we've got the sheep and we've got the guy with the fruit and the veg. <laughs> and at just my side, we've got the big Highland bull, right? Just very docile big thing, right? And the boy that was looking after that, right? Well, the photographer, to get the shot right, the amount of work he went into this was incredible. He'd already climbed onto the roof of his motor just to get up there and get this great shot he was on the photo, right? The minute he clicked his camera, I still don't know if it was the noise of the camera, if it was the flash that had maybe uh, reflected off the silver hot plate award that I was giving them, but it did something to upset the Highland Bull, right? But it didn't go crazy, but just in a very nonchalant sort of way. It just went like that and flicked its seed, right? But it's right next to me, and it's left horn, which is razor sharp, right? It went in the bottom of the jacket I was wearing and just cleanly ripped it right up my side. For the oh my the jacket, God, man. Right up to under the arm, right? It, the jacket just fell apart, right? <laughs> a fright I got, right? And the guy who was in charge of the bull, he says, Tam, I'm not going to lie to you. If you had been one step nearer the bull, or that had been one step nearer you, you would have been dead. That would just have gone right through you. I've been, I've been like, mind that scene in Jaws when they cut open the shark. <laughs> number plates, the paint for it. They've been like that. So a, a restaurant review nearly killed me. I'll never forget that, as long as I live. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. What's uh, So see for the plans for the future then. Obviously everything's kind of on hold just now, apart from the radio show, but... Are you thinking, like you say, about your, your food um, sort of avenue you might, you might go back down with the BBC? Is there anything else in the pipeline for you? Uh, I, I mean, I, I always like to keep myself busy. I mean, um, I, I, aside from, I mean, the way my week is right now, let's say we're, we're still effectively in lockdown. The whole thing hasn't been released yet. So I've been working in terms of the, the, the Saturdays, I say, with the radio. And that, that, so that keeps me busy on the Friday as well. I plough through all my my week's uh, newspapers and that today, a wee bit of prep for the Saturday in terms of what we might be talking about and all that. And again, and the Monday for the start of all this, I got a wee gig going, Kay Adams' programme in Radio Scotland in the morning, doing a wee sports quiz for her. So that was good. That takes up a bit of my time, uh, getting that prepared and then doing audio clues for it and doing uh, video clips that they put on social media and all that. Yeah. And then... I, for about a year now, I've been involved with Peter Martin's company, PLZ Soccer. Right. And uh, uh, a, day, a day of Thursday with them. Uh, and Peter's been my pal for years, and I know Big Ruffy well. So it was good getting involved with that. And that was just a matter of... It, it probably tied in with me when I, when I was on Instagram last year. I think maybe when I came back, 
uh, for that holiday because when I finished up with the newspaper, which was a big, big, big chunk of my life and always took up a huge part of my week, when I realised I suddenly didn't have that and when I realised that the heart of it, the reason I didn't have it is because everything is going digital now and quite frankly, a print newspaper didn't have the, they don't have the money and they, yeah. you know, so you have to finally maybe even get your finger out your ass and move with the times a wee bit. So when I was finally cajoled into going on social media last summer with my wife and I'm on Instagram and yeah, lo and behold, I love it, right? I've great fun on it and it's been it's been great and it's great. I've, I've been able to do a lot of charity things on it and benefit uh, local businesses and all that. I've, I've got a wee buzz out of that. But for going on the Instagram, um, when Peter was wanting to get involved with PLZ Soccer, Running about this time last year, I knew that that was strictly Facebook Live, YouTube, and podcasts. You know, so I yeah. thought, "Aye, why no do it?" It was another wee uh, kind of, uh, you know, a, a, another wee string in my bow. So I've given that a go. Uh, so we did that on the Thursday. I've done that in fact uh, right after mm -hmm. I finished with you boys here. And before, and I can assure you, I won't be getting changed either. I've been You know, I, I remember dear old Arthur Montford of Scotsport fame. If you remember him, boys, hey. dear old Arthur, when we get him on offside, I think he was the only guy we were being old school. He was the only guy that ever came in to do offside with a change of clothes. Like he came yeah. in and then he asked, uh, where, Where's my dressing room, Tam? And then he get his dress, and then he come out immaculate in his, you know, clothes for the camera, his costume, right. if you like. You know. uh, but when it's been <laughs> with podcasts, anything like that I've done over the past 110 plus days, I've done them in my jammies, I've done them in my goonie, um, and that's I'm quite comfortable with that. So Peter's thing, PLZ Soccer, is going for strength to strength, and the reason that you'll know that. If you check out the amount of uh, newspapers online or in print who basically lift a lot of the stuff that Peter gets, a lot of the interviews that he gets mm -hmm. and uh, uses it. And in most cases, they name check PLZ Soccer. So he's doing really well. He's working really hard. And I'm hoping, particularly after lockdown, uh, when we can go back to maybe sitting in a studio and yeah. looking into ah, a camera and speaking into mm -hmm. proper microphones, I hope it's going to go strength to strength uh, all the other radio stuff I enjoy uh, and of course the Saturdays uh, and it's been great I, I, you know what the, the best thing about it for me we off the ball on a Saturday since March is um, that I've uh, been able to get into the BBC and sit in a normal studio right. and so we, we, we've not been allowed to have any guests in with us that's absolutely fair enough that's the rules but just for me and Stuart to be in there and get out the house for a bit. But I know you can log out now and you can travel a bit further, but just to get out the house and in there, it was absolutely brilliant and we got we get a real buzz after. Brilliant. Well, Tam, big lovers of the show. Um, big lovers of everything you've done over the, over the last few years. So we'll only take up much of your time. So thanks very much, mate, for coming on. It's been an absolute You're very welcome. Honor. Right, good luck to you, boys. All the best. Brilliant. Right, Cheers, take Tam. Care, Tam. Bye bye. See you later.